For the most part, Charles Darwin avoided speculating about how life on Earth may have started. It's in a private letter in 1871 to the British botanist Joseph Hooker that we finally get a clue. He wrote, We could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. Although Darwin had zero evidence to support his idea, modern biologists have started to fill in some of the gaps. For example, you may know the famous Miller-Urey experiment in the early 1950s. Based on what was then thought to be early Earth conditions, they were wrong. Miller zapped water and inorganic gases with sparks to simulate lightning. Amazingly, what collected in the device was over 20 different amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. Since then, other scientists have worked out simple reactions that synthesize nucleotides, the building blocks of RNA and DNA. So, voila, key organic molecules from inorganic precursors. Origin of life solved? Not really. Getting some of the building blocks is great, but it's only one step of many. The next is to coax the building blocks into long chains that actually do something, linking amino acids into proteins that can catalyze reactions, and nucleotides into strands of DNA that can store and transmit information. And these steps turn out to be much more difficult. And even harder, how do we get to cells? How do you combine proteins and DNA and membranes in the right way? Statistically highly unlikely, and you need a constant source of energy. One clever idea that sidesteps some of these problems invokes special properties of RNA. Most of us learn that RNA is what DNA gets copied into before that info gets translated into proteins. Think of RNA as a cheap, disposable photocopy of the DNA blueprints. But it turns out that some RNA molecules can also catalyze chemical reactions, something that originally was thought to be entirely the domain of proteins. This raises the possibility that life could have originated as short strands of self-replicating RNA. Molecules like this would simultaneously store information in their sequences and catalyze reactions. Such a molecule would be a kind of naked replicator that could then evolve other useful traits. Altogether, this idea we just laid out is known as the genetics first model of the origin of life, and our guest today, Nick Lane, just doesn't buy it. In his 2015 book, The Vital Question, he argues instead that harnessing energy came first, that literally metabolism came before genes and everything else. Nick thinks that life started around ancient hydrothermal vents, cracks in the seafloor where superheated water flows out into the ocean. In these systems, geochemistry naturally sets up strong proton gradients across membranes, which turns out to be the fundamental building blocks of metabolism in all of life. So when I say a protocell, I'm thinking of something that's like a cell, except it's not really got anything in it apart from water. And I'm imagining these things sticking onto the surfaces uh, inside the pores of a hydrothermal vent. So they are able to draw on the, on the flow of protons going across these walls. And that is powering really the reaction between CO2 and hydrogen. And the interesting thing about this is it's happening, it should be happening inside the protocells themselves. This idea provides a unifying but alternative and somewhat controversial explanation for the origin of life. That proton gradients and hydrothermal vents provided a constant source of energy that then enabled the evolution of RNA and the other key aspects of life. Nick also points out that the geochemistry that produces hydrothermal vents is quite common in the universe. This means that life itself might also be common everywhere, at least in simple forms. On this episode, we explore the idea that energy processing is central to the origin of life. 
With Nick, we also cover many other topics, including the origin of the three major domains of life, bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes, the special energetic advantages enjoyed by eukaryotes, and the crazy genetic consequences of an archaeon engulfing a bacterium, consequences that have shaped most of life as we know it. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. We started off our conversation with Nick Lane at the beginning, the origin of life. We asked him how life might have started on Earth, what kinds of conditions were necessary for life to start. Most people who think about the origin of life are thinking about, well, where does DNA come from? Where does information come from? How do you get heredity? Uh, rather than necessarily thinking about how do you structure energy flow in a way which is going to drive growth. And to me, heredity is a form of growth. You have to double something and then pass it to two daughter cells. So it's a specialized form of growth in that sense. So growth comes first and growth is only about cobbling hydrogen onto CO2 to make organic molecules. Organic molecules are carbon-based, what you would find in living things. Nick argues that for life to get started, you first need conditions in which CO2 will combine with hydrogen to make organic molecules. And so what environment will drive that well, the environment I talk about in The Vital Question is deep-sea hydrothermal vents. And the particular type I have in mind are what are known as alkaline vents. And these vents uh, are actually produced... And, and these are not the black smokers that everyone knows about? Okay, they're yeah. not the black smokers, no. They're, they're actually produced by a reaction between seawater, which percolates down into the rocks beneath the, the ocean crust, and minerals like olivine. Um, and, and they will react together and they produce these alkaline fluids rich in bubbling in, in, in hydrogen gas. And when they form vents, these vents have a kind of a labyrinth of interconnected pores and the pores have a structure which is a little bit like a cell. So can you walk us through the steps by which you think these hydrothermal vents led to protometabolism or something like protocells? I mean, just, just a, a quick run through of the, the, you know, the important processes that, that got us to the point of, of thinking about you know, early, early bacteria or something like them. Yeah, so I think the, the first step is, make, is just making any form of organic molecule at all. So we're starting with hydrogen and CO2. And even uh, three or four years ago, that was a claim that um, makes a lot of sense on paper and uh, had no real experimental evidence backing it up. Uh, and now it has quite a lot. Over the last three or four years, several groups around the world have managed to make hydrogen react with CO2. Uh, and the nice thing about it is the molecules that you get immediately are carboxylic acids, which is to say things like the Krebs cycle intermediates, which are right at the very heart of, of all of metabolism in, in, in pretty much all cells. The Krebs cycle is a core metabolic pathway that cells use to release energy from organic molecules. The cycle also produces molecules needed for other chemical reactions and some precursors to amino acids. So what life does, you start with Krebs cycle intermediates. I'm saying, I, I, I'm guessing that people will be familiar with that, but it's basically carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Um, add in the nitrogen and you're getting amino acids directly from there. And this is how life does it. And this is, again, being done in the lab. Um, you can start from there to make sugars. Uh, by what's called gluconeogenesis. Again, that's mostly being done in the lab. The bit which is still missing is making nucleotides uh, from amino acids and sugars, which is how it's done. 
uh, by cells. But a lot of that has been done now. We're doing that in my own lab. Other labs are racing to do exactly the same thing. And I think it's a, you know, a matter of a year or two before this whole process has been done, starting effectively with CO2 and hydrogen. Not necessarily in a single in a single pot, but starting with amino acids and sugars in a single pot, that should be doable pretty soon now. Nick is saying that some components of the Krebs cycle may have originated from non-living processes around hydrothermal vents. It's another way of saying that metabolism came first in the origin of life. So so the long and short of all of that is you 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 need a you need a a setting that will drive this reaction between hydrogen and CO2. We have that already in these vents. That's making carboxylic acids from which we already know you can make amino acids and fatty acids and sugars. And so this is my context for what a protocell is. The nice thing about fatty acids is they're not polymers, they're not macromolecules like a protein or DNA. Um, the the, the, the bilayer membrane around a cell, they're quite large molecules. They've got 10, 15 carbon atoms in a fatty acid tail. But it's still, it's a, it's a macromolecular structure which is not joined by bonds of any sort. So they will form spontaneously. And again, we and others have shown that they will form spontaneously in alkaline hydrothermal conditions and make protocells that, that you know, have aqueous interior and a bilayer membrane, which is pretty much stable under a wide range of conditions. So let me just, Nick, let me make sure that I'm getting this straight. So we have we have these particular types of molecules that just given their structure will lend themselves to creating something like a cell without any extra help that's going to be necessary for some of these other molecules. They just, by their nature, orient into something like a cell. Yes. And that's not a controversial statement at all. I mean, this is just like oil spreading on water. It's just physical chemistry. That kind of thing happens and has been known for a long time that it happens. The question is, are you producing enough of them in a particular environment to to, to have the concentration high enough that they'll self-organize in that way. And, and are you imagining them self-organizing into spheres like micelles, or are they uh, like across pores in these, these hydrothermal vents so that you, you can have sort of geochemically driven gradients of protons across the, 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 the initial membranes? For the listener, micelles are just sphere-shaped blobs of fatty molecules with the water-repellent ends facing the middle of the sphere. So I'm, I'm, I mean, my cell doesn't have an aqueous space inside. It's, it's just the, it's the, the, the lipid tails interact directly with each other. Um, but you do get um, bilayer membranes with an aqueous interior. So when I say a protocell, I'm thinking of something that's like a cell, except it's not really got anything in it apart from water. And I'm imagining these things sticking onto the surfaces uh, inside the pores of a hydrothermal vent. So they are able to draw on the, on the flow of protons going across these walls um, and that is powering, really, the reaction between CO2 and hydrogen. And the interesting thing about this is it's happening, it should be happening inside the protocells themselves. In other words, it's kind of autotrophic. You're converting hydrogen and CO2 inside a protocell into fatty acids, which go straight into the membrane and are helping it to grow, and amino acids, which will interact with other things and catalyze things. Um, so the obvious thing that they would interact with uh, would be iron and sulfide um, to form iron sulfur clusters, which you get in proteins, um, and proteins like ferrodoxin, which are responsible for CO2 fixation. So again, we and others have shown, we, we've shown recently, we've not published this yet, but uh, just cysteine alone, a single amino acid, will bind to iron and sulfide in solution to produce 
the same 4-FE, 4-S clusters that you get in biology. You need just one amino acid at pH 9 and it works. Um, so, so you're kind of, you're, you're tantalizingly close to the machinery that you need to fix CO2 in a protocell environment, which would drive growth. And that's the environment that I imagine, and, that, and now we are into the realms of imagination, that I imagine nucleotides would arise in, inside these growing protocells, and the code arises in that kind of context. Well, what, what's also really different from this portrayal, and I, and I think we, we went through it really quickly, is that Darwin's primordial soup is a really different context, and it's probably not the context that we need to think about. It's not the one that you're, you're pitching right now. These hydrothermal vents and how you mentioned their structure to be oriented plays a huge role in how this all came to be. I mean, do you, do you want to walk through exactly how that, that comes together? Because I think we may have gone through that a little quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, the old idea of a primordial soup, it, it's, not, it's not gone away. And, you know, Darwin's warm pond is probably still the dominant idea in the origin of life field, except when we would now call it terrestrial geothermal systems. Um, and, and a lot of that chemistry works quite well. Uh, you start with cyanide or cyanoacetylene, you use UV radiation, and you're able to make all... Uh, the building blocks of life. And the problem for me with all of that uh, is beautiful chemistry that works well, but it doesn't look anything like biochemistry. And so you're still left with this question, okay, so we've got all these, all these monomers floating around in solution. Um, what happens next? How do they invent life from there? How do, you, uh, how, how do they come up with genetic information? Hmm. So let's, um, let's jump into those, those details. Um, but I, I want to, and before we get there, just sort of lay out like how, how profound something you just said and we sort of moved past it was that it's really this energy metabolism that is maybe the defining characteristic and the thing that we put on the pedestal, you know, DNA and information and such. At least we have to think about them contemporaneously and maybe we have to think about the metabolism even even first. So that's a that's a pretty strong. I mean, I mean I'm putting a, words in your mouth, perhaps, but but yeah, yeah. That's that's an old and kind of controversial, angry question in in the origin of life. What came first, genes or metabolism? And 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 and, and it, actually, the question is a bad question because you you're, you're drawing an imaginary line across a continuum and saying, okay, life. We define life as something which is capable of making a a, a copy of itself according to some hereditary code. And so we draw the, the line. Now, you can draw that line wherever you want to and call it life or not call it life. Uh, something has to make all these nucleotides or whatever the code might be made of. Um, and, and that something, you know, it also has to concentrate them to the level where you've got enough of them that you can double everything, copy it, double everything, copy it. You, you need to be able to drive exponential growth, um, at least under some conditions. And, and to be able to do that, you've really got to have a let's call it a proto-metabolic system, which is capable of making nucleotides. Now, we don't have to call that alive. All we're saying is that there is a kind of primordial context that generates nucleotides, and those nucleotides go on to become heredity. So that surely in itself is not a controversial statement. Some kind of environment has to make the nucleotides. Uh, and the question then is, well, what kind of environment would produce those nucleotides? Because it's important what else it's producing. Is it also producing amino acids and fatty acids? Are you going to have nucleotides appearing in the context of protocells, which are kind of simpler entities in many ways, or are they going to have a kind of naked RNA uh, with an RNA world which, which uh, invents all of metabolism? In which case, 
you're faced with the problem about the origin of information. How does all this RNA acquire the information needed to encode metabolism? Whereas if you do it the other way around, you never really have a problem with meaning because the meaning is always about growth. Whatever improves growth um, is going to be selected. Whatever's selected, you know, any code that emerges in that, in, in that setting already has some kind of meaning. The meaning is it helps this protocell grow a little bit faster. I want to take us just a little bit different direction and and talk about the the evolutionary implications of these ideas about protocells, right? So so you've argued that energy came first and that there are these you know protocells that are uh, lipid membranes that are exploiting proton gradients, and then at some point those evolve other kinds of machinery, right? Like DNA and RNA and and sort of more of the familiar uh, things that we all think are, are universal features of life. So, so if we try to imagine what the evolutionary process is among those protocells, uh, how, how does that work? And, and what are the units of selection and, and replication? And, and how do you assess fitness? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, I have a PhD student, uh, Raquel Palmira, who, who is working on exactly these questions. And um, they are tough. They, and this, is, this goes back a long way, and nobody's really ever solved it to, to uh, anyone's satisfaction. So we have very clear what's being selected. The protocell is being selected. If it can grow faster and make more copies of itself, it's, um, then, then it's selected. And, and, and so RNA, let's say RNA rather than DNA, RNA comes into, um, into being, if you like, in, in that context. And it, what it has to do, if it's going to be selected, is speed up protocell growth. And if, if it is there and doesn't speed up protocell growth, then... then <laughs> the selective unit is the protocell, and so it's going to go away again. And that leads you to an earlier question, which is, okay, so not just RNA, but what about nucleotides? You need to have enough nucleotides in this protocell uh, for them to spontaneously at some point form into even short RNA. So we, we would assume when you get RNA, it's going to be sh short stretches, or let's say at the most five to ten nucleotides in a row, and maybe most likely two or three and so then the question is, well, it, and it has no, it has no code. <laughs> it's just a random sequence. What's it doing, which is helpful? You, you already spelled out what the value of lipids would have been to selection for these, these early protocells. And I think we all have a sense of what proteins would be as enzymes to facilitate you know, many different parts of, of metabolism. But before RNA served the function of you know, the information that it encodes and what it, now, we now un understand it to do, What's the idea about what its value would have been to those very first cells? Did it, is it thought to have acted as an enzyme as proteins would have? Or do we have a sense of what that might be? Um, well, I mean, even before that, even before you have RNA, you have nucleotides. And a lot of cofactors of enzymes are dinucleotide cofactors. Um, so, 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 so the gist of the idea, and again, this goes back quite a long way, over several decades... If you think about NADH, for example, or even ATP, um, but but a lot of them acetyl-CoA, a, a lot of them are, are, are nucleotides, and often it's not the nucleotide itself that's doing the chemistry. Quite what it's doing there, I'm not sure. Is it a handle of some sort? Is it interacting with, with short polypeptides? I, I, I'm not sure, but it's doing chemistry. Uh, and so that seems to be the obvious thing 
And again, this is how we're modeling it. We're assuming that the first time you see nucleotides, they're in a protocell setting. And what are they doing for the protocell? Well, they're catalyzing something. And so the question is, well, what could they be catalyzing? And curiously enough, the, the modeling that Raquel has been doing shows that the only thing that will work is if they catalyze CO2 fixation. If they catalyze, I mean, what we wanted to work was that uh, they would catalyze their own synthesis and you'd accumulate nucleotides, that there would be some kind of autocatalytic loop. Um, and we couldn't make that work in the model in any set of circumstances that we tried. And we, you know, we tried everything we could think of. Um, which in one sense was disappointing because we couldn't accumulate nucleotides. In another sense, it was kind of really interesting because it forces you into a corner where you say, well, actually, now we're right up at the limits of what a monomer world can do. Um, you can't have a code in a monomer world and you can't develop greater complexity in a monomer world. You can get up to a kind of replicating protocell and that's it. Then it's, we, we found that it's kind of not evolvable, but quite robust. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting place to be. And the only, the only way in which nucleotides seem to help is if they catalyze CO2 fixation directly, which is in fact what a lot of nucleotide cofactors do in things like methanogens um, or some bacteria. Uh, you know, folates, for example, uh, they are nucleotide cofactors involved in CO2 fixation and, and methanopterins as well. So, you know, there's a, there's a biological um, pleasure in <laughs> seeing that it's... This is the prediction is that it can only work if it's doing that. And actually, it is out there doing that. For a protocell, it's not totally clear what would make one nucleotide better than another. But Nick says there are clues. The RNA in our cells uses a three-letter code to spell out certain amino acids. There may be some logic in the order of those letters that indicates how they behaved chemically in early cells. Uh, and there are, there are codes within the codons. Uh, this is, again, goes back to the 1970s or certainly the 80s. Um, that, for example, the second letter of the code correlates with the hydrophobicity of the amino acid that it codes for. And it seems to me that, and this is the first kind of branching distinction that we can think about that would make a distinction between different nucleotides or different amino acids and function. So we're thinking about it in those, in, in those terms. And, and, and when I say function, I mean... Is, is the protocell going to grow faster or not? Just a quick aside, what you just said about the code implies that uh, it's not an arbitrary code, that there's something about the early chemistry of proto-life that drove the particular structure of the code. And that, that implies that if you know this process were to play out again on another planet, we might end up with a similar code. Do you, do you think that's... Is, is that a reasonable statement? Uh, yes. Huh. Uh, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, not an identical code. And it would be uh, the third position is more or less random. That's, I, I mean, there's, there's, I don't think, I'm not sure everyone would agree, but the idea that there was initially a doublet code rather than a, a triplet code um, makes sense from a physical chemistry point of view, at least, because the first letter of the code correlates with the um, precursor of the amino acid that it codes for, which... It's kind of tantalizing. And the second letter of the code, it, it correlates with the hydrophobicity. Um, and, and so it seems to imply physical interactions, physical chemistry. Um, but there are all kinds of different ways you could interpret it or try and figure it out. And, we're, you know, we're not so far away from what other people have been thinking about. We, we, we start out by thinking, well, here's a subset of amino acids which are most likely to be produced under primordial conditions. Um, what are their interactions with nucleotides? 
you know, what, what would we expect to see here? You'd expect, you know, maybe a purine with two rings to be more hydrophobic and to interact with more hydrophobic amino acids, for example. That, that's really amazing. That, that, I mean, that kind of gives me chills in a way because I've, I myself have always sort of naively thought that the code is arbitrary and, and, and I've taught that it's arbitrary. And I know that people have arguments that it's not, but I've never thought about the details of that. And, and that's, that's amazing. I mean, it was Crick who called it a frozen accident. And, and it's kind of uh, stuck right across biology that it's a frozen accident, but it's been known for a long time, since the 60s really, um, that there are patterns in the code. And what they mean is hard to interpret. You can, inter you can interpret it in you know, several different ways, but, but the fact that it surely means something, it does point at some kind of physical chemistry interactions. And they only go so far, and they've been overwritten uh, by other things as well. So it's 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 hard to know. And I think most people are groping around. And this is why it's such an exciting question, really, is that uh, we, we feel tantalizingly close to an answer, and yet then it evaporates. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go in slightly the same direction just for a minute, which is, uh, you know, imagining these protocells evolving the machinery of RNA and DNA and, and proteins. Uh, how, how long did this take to happen and you know is it is it a rapid process are we talking hundreds of thousands or millions of years just after the origin of these protocells or is it a much longer drawn out process i would like to think that it's quite a fast process um and that's wishful thinking um for several reasons i mean one of them um is is simply that it's chemistry and chemistry either has to happen fairly quickly or it's not going to happen at all um because things will dissipate so if it's not if you're not producing the, the, the monomers all the time, you're going to be losing them all the time. So you've got to be producing them faster than you're losing them to drive any form of growth. Uh, and that kind of forces you to do some swift chemistry. Once you've got to the point that you're doing natural selection, even if it's on a non-genetic entity, even if it's a protocell without genes, but some form of membrane heredity, for example, um, then maybe it slows right down. Maybe if you're able to make copies of yourself then you can span out over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. But I think to get to an entity that can make copies of itself is going to have to be faster. It's not mm. going to happen mm. at all. And the other reason I say it's wishful thinking is if you want to try and do any of this in the lab, then you've got to believe that it can be done quickly. <laughs> it better <laughs> yeah. be fast. And the, 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 the other idea, you know, the, the, other, the other way of seeing it is, oh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, let's, let's talk time in hundreds of millions of years. Um, why? You know, there, there's... Because the history of the Earth is four and a half billion years old, and because we don't, because there may be five or six hundred million years from the beginnings where it might be possible to start organizing life to the time we see the first fossils that we could say for sure is life around three and a half billion years ago, you know, thinking, okay, we've got six hundred million years to play with, there's our timeline, let's use it. Uh, you know, may, maybe it happened in a thousand years. Who could say? We we have you know we have absolutely no idea, and I think it's more exciting to think quickly rather than to assume that everything is amazingly slow. I don't think we have a reason to think either way. Now we're going to skip way ahead to the origin of eukaryotic cells. Just a reminder: eukaryotic cells have many features that bacteria and archaea do not mitochondria and other membrane-bound organelles, a nucleus, and genomes organized into separate chromosomes. 
As a group, it's the eukaryotes that have diversified into the big multicellular organisms that are now so successful on Earth. Plants, animals, fungi. Current thinking places the origins of eukaryotes at more than 2 billion years ago, and we know now that they arose from a process of endosymbiosis, a bacterial cell taking up permanent residence inside an archaeal cell. Today's mitochondria are the descendants of that bacterium. Uh, we want to skip forward uh, quite a long ways and start talking about the origin of eukaryotes. Um, and, and you'll notice that we're skipping over several billion years of evolution here. And, and, and maybe let me just uh, try, try to paraphrase just a little bit uh, from your book about, about what happened during that intervening billion or, or two years. So from those protocells, we got the origins of bacteria and archaea, the two kind of major domains. Um, and, and I think you argue persuasively that a lot of the evolutionary diversification of those two groups is about uh, exploiting different redox reactions and finding new ways of, of producing energy uh, and just this vast explosion of, of metabolic diversity once those two groups were, were out there. Um, but that, that there was no real sort of complexity that arose within those lineages, at least at the level of multicellularity and sort of the complex uh, you know, activities that we see coming out of eukaryotes. So just in the interest of time, we don't want to discuss bacteria and archaea too much, except in the context of uh, what what happened at the origin of eukaryotes and and what what are the consequences for the way that, that energy was available and energy could then be used. So maybe just t- tell us in, you know, in, in your way, what, what happened there? We know that mitochondria um, derived from free-living bacteria. So there was some kind of an endosymbiosis between the bacteria that went on to become mitochondria and a host cell. And then the question is, well, what did that host cell look like? Was it an amoeba-like thing that already had a nucleus and already did lots of sophisticated things? And phylogenetics says no, it was an archaeon. It basically had none of those things or very few of them. So then you can say, okay, so the host cell was an archaeon. It acquired a bacterial endosymbiont. This is the beginning of uh, the evolution of eukaryotes. What happened next? So there's almost nothing to constrain you here. We have, again, this is a little bit like the, the, the origin of life. We have a starting point um, and we have a known end point. Um, uh, and the question is, well, can we imagine a path? Bacteria do lateral gene transfer. Eukaryotes do sex. They do a two-step meiosis, but they use the same machinery that bacteria do for lateral gene. The homologous recombination machinery in bacteria, eukaryotes use that same machinery for meiosis. And they stopped doing, for the most part, they stopped doing lateral gene transfer. So why did they do that? And there are limits to genome size. So the the interesting thing about having mitochondria is it effectively allows you a lot more energy. You have multibacterial power without the overheads. That's the simplest way of seeing it. That you, 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 you've got, if you've got 10 mitochondria, you've got the power of 10 bacteria, but whereas 10 bacteria would each have their own genome of, say, 3,000 genes, 10 mitochondria have just got, you know, maybe 40 or 50 genes each. Their overhead costs are really limited. They produce the same amount of ATP. They can support a much larger nuclear genome. A key concept here is energy per gene, which refers to how much ATP is available per gene in the genome. Compared to prokaryotes, eukaryotes produce vastly more energy because the energy-producing membranes associated with mitochondria are distributed throughout the cell volume. Greater energy per gene has allowed eukaryotic genomes to undergo dramatic expansion, which probably allows much of the complexity in eukaryotes that we don't see in bacteria and archaea. 
But assuming that you're picking up genes, you've probably got genome duplications or gene duplications, or you're picking up genes from your endosymbionts and so on. So a lot of what you're picking up would actually have function, um, but would tend to become pick up mutations very quickly. So how would you keep a clean genome? How would you avoid having a mutational meltdown? Um, and the, the answer there, we have a paper coming up shortly, is um, if you do it by lateral gene transfer, you've got to do an awful lot of lateral gene transfer. You've got to be doing it almost every generation. Uh, and still it doesn't work. You're still going to, above a certain threshold of genome size, you're going to have a, a mutational meltdown. You, you, you're going to pick up the wrong bits of, of DNA from the environment and, and, and it simply doesn't do it. The way out is to pick up large pieces of DNA whole chromosome-sized pieces of DNA. And, and suddenly it's beginning to look like the first step towards meiosis, line up chromosomes and, and switch between the chromosomes. I'm giving this as an example that you can kind of think from first principles. Here's a situation where you've got one cell inside another cell. It allows the genome of the host cell to expand. What are the problems it's going to face? How is it going to fix them? Just one other thing to say about sex. This, I, I started out by by saying that it's very weird that all eukaryotes share the same basic cell structure. We all have the same nucleus, the same endoplasmic reticulum and mitochondria and everything else. Um, what kind of inheritance would allow you to accumulate all those things? The only way you could do that would be by lining up a chromosome, and if it's got something on that you don't have, incorporating that in. In other words, gene loading, which is almost what lateral gene transfer does, but done on a chromosomal scale. That would do it. And that implies that the, the early eukaryotes were sexual already, uh, which is generally agreed that they probably were, but it would allow them to start picking up other traits in that environment. So it kind of says sex has to come early. Um, and, and so you can begin to piece together, you acquire mitochondria in a host cell that was an archaeon that didn't have a nucleus or any of these things. The next thing is it's 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 getting a larger genome. How do you maintain a larger genome? Well, you're going to have to fuse together and line up whole chromosomes. You're going to have to become sexual and so on. So you can begin to piece together what might have happened. Um, and it's hard to know how you can get beyond that, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great fun because, again, it, it's, it, very few other people are starting with that starting point and trying to do conventional population genetics on, on a starting point, which is, which is not the usual one, where you assume that the host cell was already, it had already got a nucleus, it was already sexual and so on. Well, how, how do you explain that? It's just, just absolutely amazing. I mean, reading this section of your book um, towards the latter half of the sort of appearance of, of eukaryotes and going from the energy per gene concept to the, you know, evolution of, of sex and how that, that initial endosymbiosis led to so many of the things that we distinguish most of life that biologists study. That's one of the most amazing things I've read in a long time. And I, um, can, can we go through with the energy, with the energy uh, issue alone? So, so I'm going to use your words because you're much more eloquent than I am. Your 40 trillion cells contain a quadrillion mitochondria, providing a total convoluted surface area of 14,000 square meters or four football fields, which pump 10 to the 21 protons per second. So they solved the energy problem. And then they, I mean, not only solved it, but came up with this innovation that really distinguished them in a way that no other life on the planet ever experienced. And you're, use, and you're using that as a sort of, I mean, the energy per gene idea. I mean, do, can, can you walk us through what that means 
at the sort of energy per gene idea and how it you know led to their commonness? Uh, the first thing we did, this was a paper with Bill Martin from about 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, and the initial idea was, well, the thing about having mitochondria is they, they are respiring across their membrane. And when you, when you internalize them, you're internalizing respiration and you're internalizing the genome with it as well. Um, and that means you're no, longer, you're no longer pumping across the cell membrane. So you can now use your cell membrane for other things. But there's, there are surface area to volume constraints here. That effectively, if you, if, you are, if you imagine a cell as a sphere um, and it's, it's pumping protons to energize a membrane and that membrane is the, is the, is the plasma membrane surrounding the cell, um, then as you scale it up, then the amount of ATP synthesis you could do, the amount of energy you can generate is going to depend on the surface area of the cell. Whereas your requirements for protein synthesis, if you're going to become eukaryotic, is going to depend on the volume of the cell because the volume we know is full of proteins doing active things. And so your energy requirements are going to scale as the cube and the, and, and, and the energy availability with the square. Now, there'll be all kinds of ways out of that. You just change your shape and you convolute the, the, the membrane. But for the most part, bacteria don't do very much of that. But then the question is, well, why, why couldn't you just have lots of convolutions on the inner membrane. Uh, why, why, could you, why, why do you have to have an endosymbiont? And, and the answer there seems to be, well, what do, what do mitochondria have that an internal membrane doesn't have? And the answer is, well, they've got their own genes. And what do those genes do? Well, they control respiration. That's the simple, the simple explanation for what they do. Uh, and so, so then you'd make a prediction. Well, if you want to have lots of internal membranes... Uh, and you really do need genes to control respiration, it's going to depend on the area of the membranes that you would need gene, you'd need gene outposts to control respiration across a certain area of membrane. That's the, the, the gist of the idea. So, so, well, there are some giant bacteria around. What do they do? And, and the answer is, and this was the moment where, where, where the penny dropped for me and I thought, gosh, there really is some, some truth in this idea. Uh, there, there, there are things like a, a Pulopiscium, which is a, a giant bacterium. It's about um, a bit more than half a millimeter in, in length, so you can practically see it um, with the naked eye. Uh, it's still a lozenge shape, funnily enough. Um, and and the, the exciting thing is it's got what the original paper described as extreme polyploidy, which is to say it's got tens of thousands, in fact, as many as 200,000 copies of its complete genome. And each genome is close to three megabases of DNA, so it's a you know it's a small but but full bacterial genome. And then you think, well, how much energy does it cost to express all of those genes? And it's a heck of a lot of energy it would it would cost to express all of those genes. But in fact, they're the same genes repeated again and again and again and again and again and again the same genome in each case. So it's not become more complex. It doesn't have a bigger genome. It's, it's got a, a kind of, each genome is symmetric. Now, what you have with an endosymbiosis, which is intrinsically something rare between two bacteria, one bacterium gets inside of another one or inside an archaeon, and it's going to start losing genes. In fact, it has to lose genes. It can't do anything other than lose genes because suddenly the, the population size is down. It's got a large genome. It, it's going to accumulate mutations. Uh, it can't do anything else. It's going to lose most of its genome. And that's exactly what it did do. And the only ones that get left in the end are the genes that are 
re required for, for respiration. Otherwise, the host cell dies as well. So you retain this core of genes which are common to all eukaryotes, which allow you to keep doing respiration at the same rate you ever did, but your overhead costs have gone down from a full bacterial overhead down to almost nothing. Uh, and you could have the same amount of DNA. You could, you know, you, you could transfer all that DNA to, the, to, to what becomes the nucleus for the same total costs. And it now has a kind of plasticity. Instead of having thousands, tens of thousands of identical genomes, you can now have one giant genome with uh, lots of different genes doing lots of different functions. The only problem you face there is, well, why would that not have some kind of genomic meltdown as well, some mutational meltdown? And the answer there is, well, sex saves you from that. You need to line up chromosomes and then you don't have, a, you don't have this meltdown. So, so the thing about energy per gene, you can measure this directly. You can measure the metabolic rate of a polypiscium. And you can do the same thing for a eukaryotic cell. You can do the same thing for E. coli and so on. And what you find is there's a difference uh, of thousands of fold um, of, of anything up to 100,000 fold in energy per gene. So energy per gene does not mean you have 100,000 more genes. It means you have 100,000 times as much power to express the genes you've got. In other words, maybe you're going to have, well, we have about four or five times as many genes as E. coli, and we might express each one 100,000 times more protein from each gene that E. coli does. Certainly 10 to 100,000 times more. We have, um, you know, we, 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 we probably have at least 1,000 times as many ribosomes in a eukaryotic cell compared to, and, and some have up to a million times as many ribosomes. So, you know, we're scaling up the ability to make proteins. That's what it's really doing. So, so when I ask a related question, uh, your, your book motivated me and Marty to spend some significant time thinking about this question that you pose about why, you know, why, why are there no large, complex, uh, multicellular bacterial lineages or, or archaeal lineages? And, and we got to thinking about um, other ways that bacteria associate besides endosymbiosis. And the obvious one is biofilms, right, which can can have very long-term stable associations between individual cells and individual lineages. So why don't we have, you know, large, complex, interesting biofilms that are running the world in, instead of eukaryotes? I think we're into standard evolutionary biology there, which is to say... Um, the why are all our cells genetically the same? It's about conflict management. Um, that if you try and build an organism from genetically distinct cells, then you will have conflict. Um, they will have their own interests. Right. Um, so the just interests are not aligned in the right way to get the evolution of these more complex. Uh, that's my that's my assumption. Is is that there? I think the other thing is that the genomes are. Um, I mean, there's two ways you could imagine organizing it a multicellular organism of complexity. Either every cell can have exactly the same genes and you need, we know in the case of humans, 20,000 genes plus X amount of regulatory material behind it. Um, so you need to expand your genome size. Then you switch off any genes in any tissue. You might express 25, 30% of the genes that you've got, maybe in the brain a little bit more. doesn't matter what those numbers are, but the thing is different tissues express different subsets of the complete genome, um, and they do different functions. But all the cells have the same total genome. They're all genetically related 
to the same yeah. to the yeah. same level. That's one way of doing. It. That's I, what we do. And and then you have a problem with de-differentiation and cancer and things like that. The the other way of doing it would be to build it from genetically distinct cells, which are collaborating with each other. But that seems to be intrinsically much more difficult to kind of keep a that level of collaboration um, working when the cells have got too much of their own interests. I mean, it's never happened. And, and, and I, I agree. And, that, and that's what the data say, right? Um, but, but at some level, you know, the argument is about, um, you know, one, one cell lineage acquiring an endosymbiont of another cell lineage, and then that leading to this explosion of, of diversity. But, you know, so that's an endosymbiosis. What about a long-term stable ectosymbiosis? You know, why, why wouldn't that align the genetic interests of that unit in the same way that having the cell on the inside would? And, and maybe the answer is something about, you know, all of the gene transfer from, from one lineage to another. Um, yes, I mean, my feeling is that the answer is genome size, that if you really want to have a system which is, um, which, which is a clonal system where standard evolutionary biology says that your interests are aligned, except insofar as some some germline cells and others are not, but um, you need to be able to support, without mutations, a large enough genome that's able to fulfil all those functions. Whereas if you've got even an ectosymbiosis, um, it may be that there would be gene transfer and that you would have different sized genomes that one of the cells would grow larger, though I find it hard to believe that it would grow so much larger. I think it's still going to be constrained by standard kind of bacterial constraints. I mean, I think the standard state for bacteria is to collaborate with other cells, is to to have symbioses with other cells. Um, uh, uh, but still, you don't see large increases in genome size of bacteria up to eukaryotic levels really ever which to me says that uh, it's just not possible. That even if the reasons I put forward are not the right reasons, it tends to say that in, in, in bacterial ecosystems, even with a lot of collaboration and networking going on, you don't see big changes in genome size. And, and I think the, the, the difficulty of the commitment to a multicellular organisation um, is probably way beyond any biofilm, the, the level of commitment required. I mean, you know, there, there are other interesting... Uh, studies on slime molds, for example, where you're not starting with a single cell, but you're bringing cells together uh, that have had different life histories themselves. And then cheating becomes the central issue in who goes where on the stalk and who, who, who gets through to the next generation. So even when you're dealing with genetically slightly different cells, those the, 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 the tendency to cheat or to um, cooperate are, are kind of the reason slime molds are such an interesting model is that you see these patterns far more clearly than you ever do when you're dealing with a starting with a single cell and you've got a, an entire clonal clonal body. So I, I think those differences must be magnified even more when you're not dealing with cells from the same species, but you're dealing with different, completely different genomes, completely different beasts. Um, let me push back a little bit on on one of the one of the big claims in your book, although I, I may have misunderstood it. And I think it's that the conviction of getting bacteria and archaea, life like that, is relatively easy. But if the, the conditions are so common and it's effectively, it's comparatively simple to get bacteria or things like bacteria, why do we only have bacteria and archaea on Earth? 
why don't we have five or 60 or 200 other independent lineages of simple life? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. I mean, in a way, why do we even have two? <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that I, I, I did actually address in the vital question, and I, I'm not sure that the answer is persuasive, um, but it's, it, it, there was a very deep divergence between the bacteria and the archaea. Um, they, they share the genetic code, so plainly they have a common ancestor, they share some intermediary biochemistry, certainly at the level of chemistry, not always at the level of genes. So processes like the Krebs cycle, or at least not necessarily the whole cycle, but uh, parts of the cycle. The pathways of nucleotide synthesis and so on, they're all, they're all shared. Sometimes the genes have diverged a long way, but the, the, the pathways themselves are shared. They're all chemiosmotics, which is to say they're all charging their membrane by pumping protons across it in pretty much the same way. They all have an ATP synthase. And so, you know, there's no question they had a common ancestor. Um, but then the cell membrane composition is, is not related. They're, they're just not homologous. In, the, in terms of their physical chemistry, they're quite similar. But in terms of the actual chemical composition, they're not very close. Same goes for the cell wall. Um, even DNA replication looks, you know, there's something in the order of 200 genes, I think, involved in DNA replication, and a handful of them are in common, and the rest, uh, there just isn't overlap. So, so there's something, there's a really deep and quite mystifying divergence between the two of them. Now, the argument we put forward, uh, we, meaning as a PhD student of mine, Victor Soho, who did some modelling on this some years ago, and, and, and I wrote this up in, in, in The Vital Question as well, the idea was well if you if you want to survive on a on a geologically sustained proton gradient in a hydrothermal vent a proton will come into the cell um but then if you don't have a pump you're not generating your own gradient you don't have a pump the proton comes in what's going to happen to it next and so you know if it's acidic outside and then a, a you know a thousand protons come rushing in and they can't leave again then now it's acidic inside too and 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 now you're at equilibrium things come and go but you don't have a driving force anymore. So you collapse the driving force. The only way you'd not collapse the driving force would be if you've got leaky membranes. If the proton can come in, but then it can leave again, it's washed away with an alkaline flow and they, you know, it will react with uh, hydroxide iron and get washed away. So, so we modeled this um, and found that it, well, it, it could in principle work, that there's enough power in a proton gradient so long as you have leaky membranes to be able to drive all the biochemistry that a cell would need to grow. Um, so great, but then you think, okay, well, so what happens next? How do you leave the vent? And obviously we know, you know, we know the end point. The end point is you learn to pump. So you think, okay, let's, let's give it a pump, which is a nice <laughs> thing you can do with, with any mathematical modeling. Okay, let's give it a pump. Let's cover 1% or 5% of the surface area with a pump. Uh, let's assume it's just as good as a modern pump. Um, or let's say it's 10% as good as a modern pump. You can make these assumptions up as you, as, you, as you go along. Let's pump. Now, we pump across a leaky membrane because you know you can only start with a leaky membrane. And, of course, the proton goes out and it comes straight back. It goes out, straight back. Uh, you, you know, pumping is, is no good. Um, so you think, okay, well, let's, 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 uh, let's try and improve the membrane a bit. Let's make it a little bit less leaky. And then we pump a proton out and it still comes straight back in. And, and, and you end up with this trade-off, uh, which we hadn't really thought about, but the, the, the less leaky you make 
the membrane, the more tight to ions you make the membrane, the more you cut yourself off from the hydrothermal vent. So protons can come in, but now they can't leave again. You can pump them out, but this, there's this kind of balance between you, you're cutting yourself off from the hydrothermal flow and the amount that you gain from having a pump is less than the amount that you lose from, 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 from cutting yourself off from the hydrothermal flow. Now, you know, a lot of this depends on the actual parameters that you use in the model, but conceptually, there's an issue here that you start off with a, with a leaky membrane, you put a pump in it, and it doesn't, you know, you can go over three or four orders of magnitude of improving the membrane and you get no benefit whatsoever. So you think, well, how, you know, we know they got there, so how on earth do you get out of this situation? And we realize, well, an antiporter could do it. We, we happen to know that a methanogen, for example, if you knock out the sodium proton antiporter, then it won't grow. What would an antiporter do in this situation? A proton comes in down the, down the natural gradient, sodium ion goes out. Proton comes in, sodium ion goes out. So you're adding a sodium gradient to a natural proton gradient. And when you do that, the chemistry begins to work. Um, in other words, the trick is not change the properties of the membrane, the trick is change the ion that you're pumping. <laughs> Switch to sodium or use sodium as well because its properties are different. It's much more impermeable uh, membranes are much more impermeable to sodium ions than they are to protons. And so, so that changed the dynamic. And as soon as you change the dynamic, then it does pay to improve your membrane, to make it less leaky. And then you think, okay, what's the, what's the fundamental difference between bacteria and archaea? And the fundamental difference is at the level of membranes. Uh, and suddenly we start, we, we've got something which is stuck in a vent with a leaky membrane. Suddenly it's pumping sodium. And now it can spread through the vents because it gets more power. So it can live on uh, less intense gradients and it can improve its membranes. And so we envisage two separate emergences, one of bacteria and one of archaea. And, and we imagine that this happened very quickly. And then you think, what are the other differences? Well, the, the cell wall is different, but as soon as you've got a cell membrane, to make a cell wall, you've got to pass stuff from inside the cell out to the cell wall through the membrane. And so it's going to depend on the specific membrane chemistry. What about DNA replication? The origin of replication in bacteria is attached to the cell membrane. And, and so the machinery depends on the membrane itself. And so the differences between bacteria and archaea, you can explain them as differences in the membrane. And the differences in the membrane, you can explain as the starting point. And then the speed, as soon as you've got this one invention in place, a sodium proton antiporter, the speed at which they will diverge and leave the vent would be almost instantaneous in kind of evolutionary time. And so you have these two separate origins of something really deep, but anything else that then, you know, then we're back to Darwin, who's, who said, well, as soon as you've got life, it's going to eat anything else. So I think there's actually a really interesting issue. The reason you don't see five or six separate origins is as soon as you've got life, which has left a vent and taken over the world, it's going to eat everything else and nothing else ever has a chance of getting going. So the fact that there's two separate kind of semi-origins, if you like, from the same vent of bacteria and archaea says a lot about that question. Huh. And you know, my next question is, does it, does it then mean that most places in the universe are likely to have, where, where there is life, there's going to be these, this sort of doublet? Or are, could the conditions be unique enough that we would only get one that explodes later. I, I, I think it just happens to be the case that, uh, I mean, it would be possible to have more or just possible to have one. I mean, it, it just seems to me that two, two different lines happened to solve the same problem in slightly different ways at the same time. Yeah, yeah. 
is not a particularly difficult problem, I think. I, I thought maybe you were going to say that there's only two ways to solve the membrane problem. And so the two major lineages did that. But it sounds like that's not it. It's more that, that those are the two that escaped and then they occupied all of the niche space. And subsequently, there's just nothing left, right? That's how I see it. Yeah. I'm sure there are more than two ways to solve the membrane problem. So last year we talked with Paul Davies about his uh, latest book, and we spent a lot of time talking about information and, and energy. And, and I've been kind of semi-obsessed with information ever since. And Marty and I have spent a lot of time talking about it. And, and my question is, is a kind of um, maybe ill-formed and vague one, but I want to characterize your book as focusing primarily on, on energy, right, and the primacy of energy and the origin and diversification of, of life. And I think of energy and information as as different kind of fundamental currencies in in the universe. And and one of the things that that Paul Davies argued was that uh, there's a lot of interesting physics to be discovered in biology because information content is so high uh, and so dense. And I guess I I just want to put it to you: How important do you think information has been in in the diversification of life? And if you had to like rewrite your book to focus on information rather than energy, what would you say? Um, I probably will write a book at some point on the origin of information uh, at the origin of life because it is a fundamental question. And I, I I was talking earlier on about what's being selected and where does meaning come from. Um, and I, I, I know and like Paul Davis a great deal. Um, the question is where I would probably differ with him is, is there a requirement for some new physics to explain the origin of information in biology? And my feeling is no. <laughs> and his feeling is yes. Um, uh-huh. And so... You guys should write a book together. <laughs> well, it would, it would be an interesting <laughs> argument, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I have a copy of his, his book and I've not had a chance to read it yet. So I will actually I'll read it with, with great interest. Uh, I, I, I feel like quite a simple fellow in, in, in most respects. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a perfectly normal human being. Um, I'm not particularly great at maths, though I work a lot with, with, um, with physicists and mathematicians doing the modelling that I've been talking about. Um, but I like to try and understand things myself. And so the way I come at this question... For, for, for virtually all the information in biology, natural selection is good enough to explain it. Um, how do you get a gene family uh, where different, different proteins have, you know, the hemoglobin family where you have different versions of the same gene with slightly different functions in slightly different environments? Well, you duplicate and duplicate and duplicate and then select for different functions in different settings. You've gone from the information implicit in a single gene to the information implicit in multiple genes, each doing different functions in different environments. You've increased the information content of the system, um, but you've not done anything which is very hard for any biologist to understand. You've just duplicated a few genes and selected them in different environments. So to me, that's the simplest explanation for the origin of information as well, which is, well, what is being selected? Um, and, and here I'm back to protocells, which are growing, and what is being selected is the growth rate and so if we're able to understand the beginnings of the genetic code in that context, just in terms of increasing or decreasing the, 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 the growth rate of protocells, then 
meaning comes with protocell growth and it's the same in the same way that you get additional meaning in a family of hemoglobin genes because one of them is expressed in cold temperatures one in hotter temperatures and you know these 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 kind of um differences so there's no there's no difficulty with where meaning is coming from in that sense and if you're starting with a selective unit which is a protocell and, and and information is accruing in that context, then it always has meaning from the very beginning. And I don't think then that you have a requirement for some unknown law of physics. Well, thanks so much, Nick, for joining us. Really, really great to chat with you. Complex life like eukaryotes on Earth might be rare, but if Nick is right, simpler life like bacteria and archaea could arise anywhere that conditions are right for generating simple metabolic systems. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you like this discussion about the origin of life, you would love our conversations with cosmologist Paul Davies and Sarah Walker about the importance of information in the origin of life. You can find those episodes on our website, bigbiology.org. That's bigbiology.org. And while you're there, consider making a donation to the podcast. You can also support the podcast by becoming a contributor on our Patreon page. The Patreon page is patreon.com slash bigbio. Those recurring donations are super important, so we hope you'll contribute. And please spread the word about Big Biology. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. Share our episodes on social media or leave us a rating on iTunes. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk to Jeremy Goldbogen, a biologist from the Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford who studies foraging in Wales. I would love to know how whales find food. What are the what are the senses involved, and also the at different scales what's involved. So somehow these whales are swimming across the ocean. Um, they can find where the food is, and presumably they can find where the best food is. So how do they do that? Can they hear the krill fields? Uh, is there some? Is there a smell? Do they just remember typically where it is, and it's sort of random or a random walk until they basically run into the good food. Um, I would love to know that. I think that's a just a cool question. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Ajinkia Dahaki, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Demery manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.